Welcome back. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac. Last week, we discussed biochar. What exactly is it? And what the research says about its application. Turns out biochar is far more complicated than some might suggest. Today, we sit down with Kathleen Draper, a board member at the International Biochar Institute and chair of IBI's Information Hub. She is also the U.S. Director of the Ithaca Institute for Carbon Intelligence. The Institute is an open-source network focusing on beneficial carbon sequestration strategies, which simultaneously provide economic development opportunities both in the developed and developing world. She is also an editor and writer for the Biochar Journal, sponsored by the Ithaca Institute. Kathleen also works with various universities and individuals on projects that are investigating the use of biochar in things from cement and other building products to wastewater remediation. She has written extensively about various topics related to biochar and is a co-author of the book Terra Preta, How the World's Most Fertile Soils Can Help Reverse Climate Change and Reduce World Hunger. So, needless to say, I had a lot of questions to be answered after some of the confusing data on biochar, and she has plenty of answers. This is a really hopeful conversation, and I can't help but walk away feeling more confident about the application of biochar in our future. If you've ever wondered about biochar as a carbon storage method, or how to think differently about how we process our waste products, then this episode really is for you. To learn more about IBI, check out the links in the show notes. And without any further ado, here's my chat with Kathleen. Kathleen, thanks so much for joining us. Biochar is like this really interesting thing that exists in the agricultural space. It's really interesting when people find these technologies and then start doing really cool research on it, which is kind of what the International Biochar Institute does. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with this organization and what the organization does? Sure. And thanks for the invitation. I've been involved in the biochar industry for just over a decade now. I learned about it when I was doing a master's in Vermont on managing for sustainability, and I jumped in very naively to see what I could do to uh, participate and help the industry. And IBI has been around longer than that, uh, but I became involved with the organization in about 20 15, 16, something like that as a board member. And I'm currently the board chair. And one of the things we try to do is try to disseminate information uh, from a trustworthy source. We've developed standards so people understand, you know, what kind of biochar could be used in soils. And we are developing training to address uh, the, the boom in the biochar industry. Awesome. Yeah, that's one of the things that was interesting to me is if you, for a lot of people that are, you know, homesteading or farming or just trying to garden in their backyard, you hear about biochar and this, you know, the wonders of biochar. And you can very quickly go on YouTube or whatever and see these videos. And it's, it seems very simple and it in some ways is. But then you look at the research on it and it becomes very clear it's not that simple. You'll see studies that, one study will say biochar increased production 30%, another one will be like, there was no difference. And some will say it was actually worse. So like, there's much more to it. And it doesn't mean it doesn't work. It's just a little bit more complicated than that. Very much so. Yeah. And, and what you guys basically do is try to find ways to show viable utilization for biochar, which I think is really important. It's, it's one thing to say it works. It's another thing to say, 
you know, to, to try to sell it, I guess, in some capacity as like this thing um, for, you know, YouTube or whatever, but like providing like a framework of how to use it is what I thought really stood out about the stuff on the website for IBI. Just like you could go through and see all these different applications. The one that stood out to me, and I know we'd spoken earlier, and then you said it wasn't really your uh, expertise, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit about it, is the Contiki, which is basically making moonshine, but instead it's using wood instead of fermented liquid, which is like this really interesting like way to, to, to use. Usually it seems like we want to generate heat from burning the, the wood to you know heat someone's house, but also get this byproduct of biochar and then a tertiary byproduct, uh, in this case being essential oil distillation. So could you talk just a little bit about this idea of like taking advantage of the fact that making biochar is very energy intensive, but leveraging that energy intensiveness into secondary and tertiary uses? Yeah, that's one of the challenges with a tool like a Contiki. It is, it is a bit challenging, but there are some ways that have been found to utilize it. Cooking might be you know, the simplest, but there was an effort in Nepal a few years back to use the heat from a soil Contiki kiln to harvest that heat to, to distill the uh, essential oils. And I forget what the leaves were that they used. I don't know how often they've done that since then, but it worked. One of the challenges is you have to have a fairly consistent, long-lasting heat for that kind of scenario. So you had to get all sorts of biomass right next to the cone uh, beforehand and make sure you were feeding the fire and things like that. Another use of the heat in the Contiki, I worked with a student team a couple of years ago, and they created kind of like a work chiller that you could put inside the cone, the metal kiln, and we used it for hot water heating. And then another use, a guy in Serbia has a heat exchanger on top of it or over it, not right on top of it. And he heats his warehouse with that. And he's turned it into a continuous feed whereby there's an auger at the bottom of the kiln so he can keep drawing out the, the biochar and adding more biomass on top. So there are a few people who have figured out a way to, to use the heat. I know some folks that do something similar with the water circulation with wood stoves and uh, utilizing that for biochar at the same time, I mean, makes a lot of sense. It's something I do personally. When I make biochar, uh, I have like a little hotel pan that I'll throw little wood chips in, throw it in the wood stove because it's heating the house anyway. And, uh, you know, you're taking full advantage of that fire that you've already got going. I, I think that's really where biochar shines is when you can use it when there's already a use for that extended heat service anyway. Despite that, the challenge then becomes, as we were just discussing, that it's much more complicated than just shoving some wood in something nearly airtight into heat. But the, the length of the heat, the temperature of the heat, the change in the temperature of the heat, the material that you're putting in all impact what that biochar is and the properties that it has in terms of its usage, right? Absolutely. Yeah. In certain situations, you know, the indigenous cultures from thousands of years ago figured out a very simple way to, to make it and use it. And so in those scenarios, I think converting it into biochar and using it in soils is is great. And, and it's not as particular as some people sometimes make it out to be. But if you are selling a product and making claims that your water holding capacity in your soils is going to increase by X, 
then you have to make sure that's true with your particular biochar. So that's where a lot of confusion is happening in the marketplace is that a lot of people making biochar don't actually understand the nuances in the physical, chemical, electromagnetic properties. And so they, they make wild claims about their biochar being able to do whatever's been claimed in the name of biochar and do it better than every other biochar out there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I think especially when we're talking about like uh, traditional indigenous usages of biochar, just because it might not seem very scientific to us, chances are they'd know within a very narrow margin what that temperature is that a fire is running and how long it's been there. And based on the water content of the wood before they put it in, what temperature it needed to be at. And all of these things that from an observer's perspective might seem like they're just throwing, you know, they're burying some wood in a hole with a fire near it. And uh, there, there's much more going on than we understand because, um, you know, it's like when you look, when somebody that's never uh, spent time outdoors looks at a, a forest and they see the forest and somebody that's a forager looks and they see the the acorns and all the things that are important to them. Um, we, we have that outsider's perspective where we're not seeing a lot of the nuance that's happening in these processes. And through our own Western science, trying to discern those differences through, you know, trial and uh, error, which uh, unfortunately sometimes people get ahead of because they see the hot new product that uh, will fix all of your problems. <laughs> <laughs> yes, guilty. The industry definitely has that bent, some of us anyway. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one thing I know you do uh, have some good experience with is the idea of a uh, septic system designed with biochar. And this is a really cool thing because I I have a 50-year-old septic tank that I know before I ever move uh, will have to get replaced, and I'm dreading it for a number of reasons. <laughs> but the idea of utilizing something like biochar is uh, seems like a really good way to leverage the fact that in reality, septic tanks are massive nutrient dumps and that they're going basically totally under underused. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so a year and a half ago or so, I uh, started construction on a new house and through the process of speaking with the civil engineer who designed my uh, septic system and drain fields, I asked him if I could put biochar in without um, going against regulations. And at first, I don't think he was, I don't think he had a clue about biochar, but it was obviously he'd done a bunch of research on it and came back to me and told me exactly how we could do it without getting in trouble. Uh, and what we ended up doing is for each of the six drain lines that I think are 50 feet long and maybe a foot across, I forget the actual measurements, we dug about three or four inches deeper than was required in the plans and we put a layer of biochar down in each of the drain lines. So I have about a ton of biochar. And then on top of that is the gravel. And then on top of that is a blend of the topsoil and sand. Uh, so that that was legit. But I think if, if we could get the laws changed, I think it would be even better instead of hauling in six or eight truckloads of sand to use sand in some of the, the uh, mix above the gravel because I think that would help, especially in certain parts of the world to, you know, to hold water longer and things like that. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have any testing going on with the septic system. But my whole reason for doing it was one to sequester carbon. But also when I realized that you're just putting gravel 
and then your subsoil, you're just dumping all sorts of things into your subsoil. And I live near a lake and I thought there's a better way to design this. So <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, how much more did it cost to design it like that? Well, to be honest, I got the um, biochar donated by somebody who was interested in having this done. So uh, what would a ton of biochar cost these days? It's usually sold by volume rather than weight. And so I had three super sacks. So it might be $1,000 more right now. It's good to know. Yeah. The website talks extensively about some of the benefits of biochar. And we actually talked a little bit before we started recording that there's some really promising research going on in terms of uh, its uh, ability to help clean polluted sites. Could you talk a little bit about that? One of the areas of interest commercially is in remediating old mine lands or abandoned oil wells. So depending on what you're trying to achieve, uh, you would need different types of biochar. So we know that a certain kind might help sorb arsenic and a different kind might help with cadmium or lead or things like that. But one of the really interesting things that I did a webinar on years ago was using it in cacao plantations that were in Peru that had too much cadmium and they were losing the whole market to Europe because they had increased their regulations about the cadmium content. And they'd been given five years to figure out how to help that problem and nothing worked until they started using biochar around existing trees and it was able to immobilize sufficient amounts of cadmium so that it met the new regulations. I think it's not as utilized in that way as it could be and should be, but I think with things like PFAS in soils, uh, we're going to start seeing a lot more attention paid to ways to remediate agricultural soils on top of, you know, the mine land reclamation. Yeah, I mean, as we record this, the town I live in just put in a heavy drought water ban where all we can use is water for indoors and uh, livestock. We're recording in July, and August is our dry month. Wow. And we are, we're not considered a dry part of the country, which is, as somebody that spends a lot of time outside, I've been like telling people, like we're in a drought, and there was no notice of it until recently. And, and it's only going to get worse. And I think it speaks to the fact that even though climate change uh, predictions have said this area was going to become more wet in the future, it's going to be more complicated than that. And that means we need to have a lot more tools at our disposal, whether it's uh, access to water that's clean or things like biochar to make that water clean. Um, and I, I think that's where a lot of this research and the, the resources going to it offer a lot of promise in terms of salvaging landscapes that have been decimated by industrialism. And uh, you know, I, the place I live, you can't eat freshwater fish because of the amount of metals that are in the water. Uh, and that's just like, it's disheartening and uh, frightening in a lot of ways when you think about yeah. it, because that water is leaching into everything, the plants, the everything, you know, you, you can't get away from it, especially with like PFAs. It seems like this is like this time bomb that we didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine if this is one of those things in 20, 30 years is going to be everywhere the way we look at lead now. The fact that biochar seems to offer some capacity to limit the damages or to at least to do something about this issue is really hopeful. So I don't know if you could speak a little bit more about that particular piece, because I've never heard anything about that. Yeah, well, as I said before, we were we were in the process of uh, publishing an opinion piece on that IBI. We hired somebody to, to review the literature 
but there's a couple of ways that it can help. One is by carbonizing the material that has it, such as sewage sludge, so that it's not land applied. It, they found that at certain temperatures, it can destroy the PFAS. So it's not in the biochar, it's not in the air, it's in the filter. So they have to figure out what to do with that filter, obviously. But there also, there's research showing that it can help immobilize the PFAS in the soil and also harvest it in water. So I think that paper should be out. There's also a, a session about it in the upcoming USBI biochar conference in West Virginia next month. So more soon. Awesome. When this comes out, that will have already happened. So hopefully only good things came from it. Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. It's interesting that it's in West Virginia and coal country where uh, you guys are deciding to do that. Is that coincidental? Is there a lot more support in those regions because of the impacts of industrialization and pollution? Or is that just coincidence? There is a biomass energy project housed, I think, at West Virginia University. And so we're partnering with them for a bioenergy biochar conference. So that's how West Virginia got selected. One of the things that I always feel um, concerned about when we talk about like these things that it's like, oh, this, this can solve this major issue. How viable is it really to say, or how realistic would it be to say, like, we can use this technology to, to do this thing that we think is like, great. Like, is it actually something that we could scale to a capacity to like solve some of these problems? It's scaling now. Uh, it's still quite small. The estimate in the U.S. for biochar production is maybe 100,000 tons a year. So tiny. But what's really interesting is to see what the effect of biochar being listed on the carbon removal marketplace has done to push production. Uh, mind you, the issue is really you have to sell the biochar for a carbon preserving purpose to really get those carbon credits. But there's so much demand for carbon removal credits and biochar is one of the few that's actually out there available. So we're seeing the opportunity to scale, but in parallel, we have to build the markets where it's going to work economically. And you know, we've tried the farming market for a decade or more, and the value proposition has been a tough sell to a lot of farmers. It's, it's really starting to boom out in California where they have water scarcity and where biochars can help. And higher value agriculture is, is obviously more able to afford it. But, you know, selling it to corn farmers in the Midwest is, is not easy right now. One, because they need massive amounts of it and, and the price point isn't, isn't there yet. Yeah, the margins are small. Yeah, they are. But it, that's starting to change. We are also seeing government support for it. The Natural Resource Conservation Service is coming out with a soil carbon amendment protocol where they will be paying farmers to increase soil carbon. And biochar is one of those solutions. 
It's called Code 336. And that's another thing that's going to be debuting at the Biochar conference is they'll be talking about what that program looks like and you know how much you could get to to help put biochar in your soils. It's one of those things, like I said, it's like, all right, are we fundamentally looking at a different future in the sense of how we relate with how uh, our water is cleaned, how our food is grown? And that seems so hard for us to imagine. I, I think we we have we struggle through this uh, the lens of our own individual experiences. Like we we can look back three generations and see that food was grown completely differently three generations ago here, and our diet was completely different. But because we're caught in our place and time, it's hard to see that. It's hard to to think that there was a time when our diet wasn't half corn. It's hard to then conversely say if I can envision a future where biochar is just like as normal as fertilizer is today and as utilized as plastics and air filtration and water filtration being all replaced with biochar. Mm. It's really hard to envision that even if, if it's something we could actually do. Yeah, I agree. It is hard. Although I will say I live in a heavily populated uh, area with Mennonites. And so you do sort of see some of the older techniques and they hosted a biochar education event maybe a year and a half ago. And they had 150 people there. <laughs> 99% were Mennonites and, and they are really interested in it because it can be locally produced. Uh, it is more natural. So that what was really surprising and, and heartening to attend that event. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely hopeful. You know, unfortunately, they're not key stakeholders in what our food system or all these other infrastructural uh, systems look like. But I think the interest in finding natural alternatives, it obviously exists because of the fact that otherwise a lot of these like snake oil salesmen around like natural products wouldn't exist if people weren't desperate for something that was you know fundamentally different, uh, whether it's disinterest in plastics or uh, concern about know, health because of all these issues people are having today, or, you know, whether it's just, uh, we can't continue to, to live like this, which I don't think it, it's easy to, you know, you start thinking about plastics that you've used since the day you were born. And the fact that most of them are probably sitting somewhere, either in a, a dump someplace or in an ocean patch someplace, that capacity, when you start thinking about it, you know, if that's every single person on the earth and every person in the future, like that, that can't continue. Yeah. Uh, it pretty fundamentally, like there's only, there's limits to that, to that, uh, that usage. We need to start thinking about alternatives before it's too late. And that's where I think biochar, even if it is, like I said, overhyped by like YouTube personalities and things like that does have a lot of opportunity to answer some of these questions and to fill some of these spaces in the way we, we consume, whether it's, uh, materials or just infrastructural things and things like that. Now, I know you talked a little bit about the food piece. I, I was really interested in the fact that when I was reading academic research versus some of the stuff you guys were doing, sometimes there was some interesting divisions in terms of like biochar applications. So like one example was in the city of Stockholm, they basically planted trees in pure biochar. And like when you look at like academic research, it was like, oh, we used 1% to 5% maybe 10% if they're feeling a little crazy. And then like Stockholm, they're like, no, we're just going to throw a tree in biochar. And uh, I thought that was like just interesting. And, you know, I, I was curious about your thoughts about that. And like if science and academia is like maybe not 
challenging biochar enough, if that makes sense? Well, I will say I, I took a group of people to Stockholm a few years ago for a biochar study tour, and they may have tried that, but they don't do it that way, generally speaking. It's a structured soil with gravel and biochar and compost. And it was interesting because we saw this being done and they, they literally scrape all of the soil away. Then they do put a, a layer of pure biochar on the bottom, but then they have what looked like black rocks. It's pre-blended gravel, biochar and compost. I think it's an 80-10-10 mixture. And that's to hold the trees in, but they, they put nothing on top of it. So what you see are black rocks and they're even putting it in driving areas. And the, and the idea really is to cleanse the water coming off the, the roads and the roofs and to increase infiltration uh, because they're right on the water there. And they, they didn't do it that way initially, but that has become one of the things that they're most interested in, as well as extending the life of trees. Yeah, that's, it's such a cool thing. And I imagine that must look really awesome, like in person, like it almost looks like super futuristic, modern, like you just this rock, <laughs> this black pathway where trees are growing out of it. Yeah, yeah, it's smart. The guy who who uh, started that, he's retired now with that tree officer. Uh, but you know, he used to grow orchids. And so he had experience using charcoal and orchid growing. And then all of a sudden heard of this thing called biochar, and they started importing it from all over Europe testing different types of biochar. And then they got this funding from Bloomberg to uh, purchase a small pyrolysis unit and, and convert their green waste in, and use that. But they are still using much more than they produce right now. So that's one of the biggest uses of biochar in Scandinavia right now. Yeah, that's awesome. It's one of those things, I think, it, even if it doesn't work, it's going to provide some really good insight into its utilization and capacity. I think that's sometimes something we're afraid to do is kind of go all out, so to speak, and just be like, let's just see if it works. It, it might, it might not, right. but we're going to find out. We're not just going to uh, mess around with 1% versus 5%, which there's nothing wrong with those studies. They're really helpful in starting to understand some of the nuance, but also like we should know the point of which there's it doesn't work anymore at all. Uh, and there's something to be said for putting yourself out there yeah. like that. Yeah. One of the projects I'm working on right now is putting biochar in drywall, and we're trying to understand what that point is, because usually when you put it in concrete, it's pretty small amount, although concrete is used in enormous quantities, but that's what we're trying to find out. when. What's the level, first when you're at net zero, but then when you can no longer meet the current performance standards of something like drywall. And it's more than you might think, but it really depends on the type of biochar and things like particle size and, and stuff like that. So we have a lot to learn, but it's fascinating to just dive into some of these areas. Yeah. Now, speaking of drywall, does biochar have any like insulatory properties? It depends on the biochar, but we made a composite that's not drywall, but it has the same uh, our value as expanded polystyrene. That's awesome. It's completely not cost effective at the moment, <laughs> but it's promising. I, we, we had a small grant to look at uh, thermal insulation packaging. So we tried a bunch of different composites and tested them for our value. And one of them came out to be really, really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, rock wool is basically a similar uh, idea. 
and it's incredibly good at what it does. So it, it does make sense that biochar would also offer some similar benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, the idea of like being able to re- to build a house that is like actually sustainable, not in the sense of like energy, but in the sense of the materials used is really inspiring to me personally. So the idea that you could do that is pretty cool. Yeah, not that your listeners can see, but that's my biochar wall over there. It's just lime and biochar, which I put too much biochar in. I learned because <laughs> some of it needs a little repair already in a year. But yeah, my whole concept with the house I just built was how many different ways can you sequester carbon? Biochar is one of them, obviously, but there's there's many ways. You know, the the panels behind me are uh, recovered fence boards and you know I have all wood paneling and so yeah it's it's a challenge but it's doable yeah and I think it's through the trial and error that will make more sustainable future possible somebody has to do the work and in this case it's you (laughs) (laughs) yeah but there's more and more people trying it out I was speaking to some folks in South Africa yesterday in the Gambia and they are working on biochar bricks um, so that they don't use as much sand Uh, which, you know, they're building these resorts on beaches, but using the sand to, uh, (laughs) to make the concrete. And then they have nothing for the people to see. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, that that could be a challenge. Now, for most of our listeners, I mean, they can't invest in biochar production facilities that are at scale and capable of producing consistent, specific results. If somebody wants to do more biochar stuff, what are your recommendations for somebody that wants to get into trying to, to do this themselves? For their own personal use? Yes. Well, I, really, you can do it in a hole in the ground. <laughs> and I have done that more than once. But you can get low-cost kilns as well, either the cone kiln type or the top-lit updraft. You can make them yourself, too. And I was making biochar not too long ago from dried weeds you know, and it's, it's going to make a decent biochar, but what I'm using it for now is for the Bokashi bram, which, you know, it's something you can toss in your compost or use it for new planting beds. So it's very manageable to do at a very small scale with little money. The weeds thing is a cool concept. I definitely have gotten into like sunflower stock char because people will use it as an extract for like potassium and things like that because of what the stocks are primarily made of. So like utilizing, being able to extract the mineral piece while also being able to continue to use as like a biochar is uh, like, seems like a win-win. And again, going back to this idea of if it's energy intensive, how do you leverage that energy to get the maximum efficiency out of it? Being able to get these multiple products out of it, a fertilizer and a biochar, and in some cases, maybe heat for your house, or uh, maybe it's uh, instead of having a fire in your backyard with your friends, you have the biochar going and it's basically the same thing. Right. There's a lot of ways we can start to think about how we can leverage the the resources we have to be able to do something that's carbon neutral or at least um, somewhat beneficial for the ecology around us. Yes. There are some smaller kilns coming out that are for heating greenhouses, but they're still kind of in the forty dollars to $50,000 range, I think, because the price of steel has just gone crazy. So it, it's, they're not being mass produced yet either, but there are some pretty big equipment manufacturers that are getting interested in biochar. And once that happens, I think we'll see some more affordable 
technologies where the heat can be harvested. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I always think about wood stoves because here in the U United States, I'm I'm guessing you probably have a wood stove. You seem like the kind of person <laughs> that would have a wood stove. So like you have a wood stove and, you know, the United States is so behind the rest of the world and what that technology looks like. And I just, I imagine that if this were to be something that took off and became more of a, a common thing that people did the same way you cook food at home, you also make biochar at home, like creating the wood stoves that were designed to be able to do that would be like incredibly helpful. Yeah, I'm not optimistic. I'll see that in my lifetime, but <laughs> you know, it would be cool. Like, you know, I, I've seen wood stoves that like you can cook on, they're designed to be cooked on any of these types of uses, whether it's heating the, the water for your house or cooking on top of your wood stove, like these, these uh, additional uses are incredible. And in some ways, really fundamental to what the, the human creativity that we all have, that I think gets lost sometimes in our consumerist mentality of I buy this thing to do this thing, and only that thing, and I buy this other thing that does this thing. And that's not how we have existed on the earth True. until you know the last 100,000 years. This is like a modern thing where we don't know how to use things for more than one one use. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it gets a little overwhelming to people, I think, when when you're trying to propose that, well, it's a holistic perspective. Yeah. And I think the building codes, um, to go back to the to the hot water idea with the wood stove, um, become kind of a, a barrier for people too, because it's like, okay, yeah, I could make a wood stove that circulates hot water in it and heat my hot water for my house. But how does this fit into like a building code? And I'm not a construction person. So like, it seems totally out of reach for the average person. But I think, you know, making little bits of biochar here and there is still accessible, at least. Yeah. And it's fun to learn how different types of feedstock turn into biochar. Because some, the first time I did hemp stalks, oh my gosh, we were so unprepared because it's so dry and spindly. It goes so fast. It's the same with weeds. So you really have to be prepared. Whereas if it's, I have a lot of lumber offcuts from my build and those take forever to carbonize. So you learn yeah. uh, you know, a lot about fire dynamics. Yeah. Are there any particular tips or maybe misconceptions that uh, you'd like to kind of clear up for folks that are just getting into this for the first time, maybe like something you always see on YouTube that you're like, that's not how that works or something that you think is kind of helpful. Well, maybe not YouTube because I, I don't spend too much time on there, but I will tell you, I was teaching coffee farmers in Colombia last year how to make biochar. And I realized I had not given them proper uh, instructions on how to prepare the material. So we went to two different farms and we were carbonizing the coffee tree stump. So they, they cut the trees every five or six years and normally just let it rot. But the first farm we went to, they cut it up into little two inch sections and they dried it using coal. <laughs> I said, That's crazy. Um, and then the next farm we went to that it was probably 25% moisture content. They didn't cut it up, but it wasn't dried at all. In fact, it was way too wet to actually make biochar efficiently. So we had to go hunt around on the farm to find a dead tree standing and cut that down and, and get the fire started. So, you know, you want some pretty dry biomass, you want to prepare it ahead of time. So, but not cut it in. If you're using a Contiki cone kilt, you can't use really dense material like wood chips are bad, but they're great for a toplet updraft kind of kiln. So you kind of got to know what to use in different pieces of kit. Yeah. So know your equipment. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Kathleen, is there anything you would want to plug? Do you guys have social media, 
Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, books. I know, I believe you have a book, I right? I do have a book. It's called Burn, Using Fire to Cool the Earth. And I was a co-author on that with my co-author, Albert Bates. And I had another one called Terra Preta uh, a few years ago. And I'm actually trying to write one on my own called Dwelling on Drawdown, which is all about sequestering carbon and building materials. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely want to know about that book when it comes out. <laughs> and folks can find you guys on social media? Yes. It biochar-international.org, I believe it is. Kathleen, this has been great. I appreciate your time, and uh, I expect to hear a lot more from you in the future. Great. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you.